Hey, Papa, guess what? What? I need new clothes. Baby needs new clothes. Where do you think we could go find some cool designs to, from to wear? Oh, I think I have an idea. I mean, we've got some awesome designs for people to wear. Oh, I didn't think about that. You go over to our website. What is that one again? It's um, tpublic.com slash foster care nation. Yeah, I think we got t-shirts and tank tops and hoodies and sweatshirts and baby onesies. They don't have any dad size onesies there, do they? Mm, I don't think so. But the baby onesies are super adorable. Yeah, they are. They even got some kids hoodies and and short sleeve t-shirts, long sleeve t-shirts. Maybe we should go over there and check it out. Where is that again? It's over at T-Public, right? Yeah. Foster Care Nation? Yeah. T-E-E-Public.com slash Foster Care Nation. You can forget a lot of things, Foster Care Nation, but never forget this. You're listening to Unparalleled Studios. I signal. Foster Care Nation. Listen up. This is Foster Care and Unparalleled Journey. Strength for the powerless. Courage for the fearful. Hope and healing for wounded hearts. Hello and welcome back to Foster Care, an unparalleled journey with Jason and Amanda. Guys, I know she's been out a lot lately, but we have a lot of kids with a lot of needs and a lot of stuff going on right now. So you just are stuck with me again today. But as usual, I made sure not to bore you too much by bringing on an awesome guest. I have an author with me here today who has a book called No Sugar Coating. The coffee talk you need to know is that I think I just butchered last part of it. No, you're totally you're good, Jason. You got the first part. The first book that I I wrote in 2019 is called No Sugar Coating: The Coffee Talk You Need About Foster Parenting. Kind of a mouthful. And then the book that came out on June 7th is called A Love Stretched Life. Yes, that's it. See, I I knew I told you if I didn't write it down and mess it up, and I only wrote down part of it. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a man of my word when it comes to messing things up. Well, no, today, you're good. You're good. You got it. No sugar coating. I mean, I feel like that's the, the that's the main message that we need to um, share with people who are considering stepping into that foster care adoptive journey, right? Like, let's not sugarcoat. Let's just like tell the real deal, which is like what your podcast is all about. Amen to that. Yeah. So today we have Jelana Goebel with us. She's talk, you know, got this book we want to talk a little bit about. Um, I love the no sugar coating. I just the title. I love that one. You know, we don't need any of this diabetic foster parenting going on out here because the more false sugar we throw on top of all this stuff, the more people think it's going to be beautiful sunshine and roses. There's no nothing we ever have to worry about. As long as I love these kids enough, it'll be fine. It'll be easy. It'll be wonderful. And, and the truth is, is that it's not always easy and wonderful. It's worth it, but not easy. I couldn't agree more. And I think, you know, re reestablishing the narrative that something that is difficult is not necessarily unworthy, right? But that's very different than like an Instagram uh, shiny soundbite of what foster care of what foster care is. Yeah. Yeah. That's social media soundbites. That's we're all sold so many of those right now. And I mean, it's tough. Yeah. It is tough. I think it's tough to convey the complexity 
of foster care in these short little pithy, you know, sentences and paragraphs. I mean, I think that that's why conversations like the one you host, Jason, are so important because it takes a while to dig into the nitty gritty. It's so beyond, you know, a few sentences for either good or bad. There's always complexity when it comes to parenting kids from hard places. Um, Always. Nothing's ever just super simple. Yeah. And I I use that phrase a lot talking about parenting kids from hard places because, you know, we've told some of the stories of the kids who've come through our house in the past. And, you know, uh, if anybody has been a longtime listener and and remembers the story of Turtle, that was you know Turtle's one of our kids at this point. He is he has been adopted fully into our our family. He is eight years old now. He's been in our home full time since he was one. And like the therapy stuff is real. Like he's got a regular uh, play therapist appointment. He he works with. We have recently been working with an equine assisted psychotherapy program, which my God, if you need some help, try that if it's available in your area, because we've had some amazing experiences. As a matter of fact, you know, um, Miss Tia and Miss Renee run this one particular program that's near us that we go to. And I'm just going to say last week, I probably was at the best therapy session of my life and it wasn't even for me. Wow. That sounds incredible. Tell me more. I'm like writing this down. Equine therapy. Um, I've none of my kids have ever utilized it, but I've heard really positive things about it. Oh, it's amazing. You know, and this particular one, we just took a horse over into the field across, across the, the street into the big pasture area they have over there. And they pulled her off of the, off of the halter and just let her walk and eat grass. Of course, you know, we're recording this. It's, it's almost June here in, in our area. The spring grass is coming up. And if you know anything at all about horses that in the grass, the spring grass is the super sweet stuff. And they, it's kind of like letting your kid loose in a, in a donut shop, you know, <laughs> you know, so they're just, she's happy as can be to, to be out here eating. And, and, uh, you know, and, and we, we watched this horse's behavior as she, she ate a circle around us more or less. And she stayed right by us because they're herd animals and they want to be around us. And, and then you can change your energy and they'll, they'll leave you pretty quick if you, if you're putting off the wrong type of energy. And, and we, we've talked to a lot of that stuff and, and we were sitting there and they brought out a bucket of rocks and they said, you know, here's what I want you to do. You know, talking to, to turtle said, I want you to write down the things, some things that are really strong emotions for you that you think about from your past. And I mm. want you to write write it on this rock. Just we had two sharpies and a bucket of rocks. It was a really wow. cheap program here. And they said, write this down. If you don't know how to write it, have your dad help you. And then if it's something that you want to let go of, something that that hurts, I want you to chuck it out and far as far into this pond as you can. But if it's mm. something you that that you really want to hold on to, why don't you just slide that rock in your pocket and hang on to it? And then they told me the part that I hadn't expected, which was I was supposed to stand down with him and we're going to do it together, he and I. Mm-hmm. And so here I am digging into my own stuff because I've got my own buckets of whatever that I'm still dealing with as a grown man, right? We all do. We and, all do. And as I'm doing this, I'm, I'm every time he comes up with something, his story is deep and nuanced and difficult in a lot of places in his mind. And the things he was coming up with was killing me because I'm like, okay, I have to be honest here with him. I can't, I can't like try and sell him some kind of buckets of sunshine and roses. He'll see right through that. Mm-hmm. And we stood there and we talked about some of these hardest things. Mm-hmm. And it was just this amazing opportunity for the two of us to stand out in nature and connect. Mm-hmm. All the while, you know, he's he's keeping an eye on the horse and we're watching her and she comes over and just this, this great experience. And we sat there and we connected through this, this hour long session of chucking rocks into a pond or sticking them in our pockets. 
I love that, Jason. And it's, it's symbolic, right? That they're rocks. Like trauma is heavy. Like it's heavy stuff that, that we're holding onto, whether we're chucking it or whether we're carrying it around in our pockets or whether we're just journeying with the child that has their pocket full of heavy rocks. It's, it's difficult work. I love that. Thank you for sharing. Oh yeah. And if I was to dig around in this mess on my desk here, of course, the listeners can't couldn't see because you can't see through those speakers very well, but I've got a couple of those rocks still sitting on my desk over here. Mm. It's those little mementos that we brought home to be able to talk about a bit. It's just so super interesting the way that that and the, the prey instinct in, in horses works, you know, because they're prey animals. They read energy really well. Mm. And, and then, then these these people teach him how to mold his energies to help calm the horse. Mm. And in the long run... He eventually learns that he can mold his energy, period. <laughs> like the, the, suddenly he realizes that, oh, wait, I can. When I am scared, when I am angry, I can mold this. I can change this. And it's, it's just been an amazing experience, you know, and so I, I well, and that's not like a kitty lesson, right? Like that's a lesson for all of us. It's like an ever evolving lesson that has no, that has no expiration date. There's so many adults that are still working on how to mold their energy around different situations and, you know, use their voice appropriately and be able to express things in a healthy manner. All of it. So good. 100%. You know, actually, we, we're changing the time of our next appointment just because uh, these two ladies are going to be uh, doing a presentation at a uh, Vietnam veteran um, group, showing them some of the skills, you know, working with some of those guys, because they're working with with war veterans. So lest you think it's just for little kids, like the hardcore guy who who was, you know, stacking bodies in, in across the, the other side of the, of the country or the other side of the world, brother, decades ago are still using this stuff in their life. So yeah, it's super potent. So, and you know, that just a great place to segue is that as we went through this, as we went go through this, this, this experience together, he and I, you know, what we're doing is we are creating connection and love in between us, building a relationship that will last a lifetime. And so the love stretched life. I want to hear a little bit about that because the, the metaphor in the title right there is the thing that I can see that I understand where I think that's headed. But why don't you tell, tell us a little bit about it? Well, I think it's, it's good to also read the subtitle, Jason, which is stories on wrangling hope, embracing the unexpected and discovering the meaning of family. I mean, so much of a love stretch life is about how my life has taken a lot of unexpected twists and turns. It is about what does holding on to hope look like when hope is not just something super easy to be found. It's not like sitting in front of you, like, da I'm here. You know, you have to search for it and then really discovering the meaning of family. And the reason discovering the meaning of family is because in a love stretch life, I, I follow three main narratives, although the book covers a lot of topics. Um, the three main narratives are um, reconnecting with our very first child, Jason, in foster care. We we welcomed him at the ripe old age of 25 when my husband and I had exactly zero parenting experience. You know, the child welfare agency was like, wow, you'd be great. And we're like, really? We would? You know, we believed him. <laughs> um, and then we were like, lo and behold, and so over our heads, we quickly discovered there is a difference between taking notes in a foster care cleaning, training class and actually like living it out, you know? <laughs> moment by moment under the roof of your home. Um, to make a very long story short, we, we quickly realized that, I mean, 
we were just in so over our heads, not only like the selflessness that just parenthood in general requires, but then, you know, what is, how does trauma sometimes manifest in like really high um, behavioral needs? And so um, we lost touch with him through a series of circumstances and had no contact with Royal. Um, I have his permission to use his name. Um, I've written about him in a love stretch life. And we reconnected with him as a 19 year old young man after only having parented him for one year in our home. And it's been an incredible journey, I think, because all of those cliches about seeds planted, I was never really a big fan of that. I was like, that just feels really cheesy to me. You know, I don't know. Um, But let me tell you to hear he's now almost 25 um, and we've been reconnected for a while now, um, almost six years to hear in his own words, Jason, what he can remember from being placed with us as a first grader in foster care is astounding. It is astounding. And it makes me think that that cheesy cliche about seeds planted might actually be true. That like, even in the midst of like 365 days out of, you know, 25 years, not being a whole lot to like hang your hat on, like that is still a foundation for a connection for us to kind of reclaim one another as family. And as I write about in a love stretch life, like Royal has lived out every dismal statistic for a child who bounces around in the foster care system. Every single one he has it, he's still engaging with it, but I feel like we, um, you know, it's, it's just, it's just been an incredible story. So crazy. In fact, that like he and his girlfriend and their child traveled 71 hours, um, on Amtrak to move from New York to Portland, Oregon, where we live, um, to just live by us, to just be close to us, being close proximity, to give it a shot of like, what does, you know, being family look like. And so that's something that I just could have never imagined saying goodbye to him, you know, this toothless first grader and having him reconnected. So he has very much stretched my life. You asked about where a love stretch life comes from. And it's just like, wow, we're not legally family, but we are absolutely family. Like he did not call me mom when he lived with us. He was the only child. He called me Miss Jelana. And then as soon as we reconnected, he started calling me mom, which was wild to me because he didn't have a choice when he was placed with me. And as a young man, totally has a choice now about who, who he connects with and kind of how those interactions, um, look. So he's been a huge blessing in my life, but it has not been, you know, it's not just not been an easy story. I think people want to kind of turn this into a little bit of a Hallmark movie, right? Like credits fade, like they found one another again and they, you know, live happily ever after. And it's like, no, 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 this is hard. Um, and also like we talked about, uh, hard can be beautiful. And he's, he's teaching me a lot. He is stretching my life. Um, another story in the book, Jason is my 13 years, 13 plus years walking with one of my now adopted, but previously in foster care sons, who's, who's 13. Um, I met his, his beautiful mom at court, Um, All I knew about her was that, you know, she was raised in foster care and that she had um, three children who had all been involved in the system um, and that she struggled with drug addiction. And 
unbeknownst, I'd never met, I had never had a, a chance to meet a person who, you know, a child welfare involved mom before, but I walked up to her at court and I handed her this eight by 10 photograph of her son who was six months old at the time. And I just said, Hey, are you Jennifer? She's also given me permission to use her name. We speak all the time now to uh, caseworkers and their essential training class and prospective foster parents kind of sharing this unlikely story of collaboration, but she's like, yeah, I am. And I was like, well, I'm Jelana. And I just want to introduce myself. I'm taking care of your son. And when you're, when you get him back, I want your bond to be strong. And I want to let you know, I'm rooting for you. And we have been through a heck of a lot of ups and downs, like so, so, so many, like the sneak preview is I adopted her third child and then fostered and returned twice her fourth child. So we adopted her third child and then we became relative providers, right? Through adoption. Um, the state shoulder tapped us again and then we returned her son. And they were just over yesterday celebrating my husband's birthday. I mean, like they're part of our family. If I had caught an, a glimpse, Jason, of how this road was going to go before just putting one foot in front of the other, fear would have caused me to like turn around and sprint seriously because I wouldn't have understood what I was seeing. Um, I wouldn't have understood how, you know, it's been messy, but I feel like it's stretched my life because I've learned that love can multiply and it doesn't always have to divide when there's two sets of parents on the line. You know, that's, that's, a, I love what you're talking about. There is, you know, kind of redefining family. Um, I just had this conversation with my 14 year old daughter. Um, she's, she's um, one of the ones that we've, we've adopted out of the foster system. But yeah, I had this conversation the other day with my daughter about, you know, the whole idea of what family is because, you know, she still has some connection with, with her bio family as well. And that's fan, fine where, where it's, where it's appropriate. You know, we, we, we're not afraid of that, mm-hmm. but, um, there, there's some pieces there where a lot of her, her bio family and extended bio family are kind of pushed to, Hey, you, you should come live with over here with us. You should come do this. You should be mm-hmm. with your real family and, and really pushing on that. And she's like, but that is my real family and you know and they had used the you know the blood is thicker than water phrase and and for the people who've who've heard that one who've used that i most people use it incorrectly that the original intent of that of that saying came from an ancient warring tribe i think it may have been the spartans although i don't know for sure um if you happen to be a history buff and know that i'm wrong let me know but um the saying isn't you know blood is thicker than water it is the blood of battle is thicker than the water of the womb Meaning that the people you sh- that you shed blood with, those are the people who are mm-hmm. truly family, the people you can stand shoulder to shoulder with and know that in your darkest moments, you can lean on them. You can trust them. That is so much more valuable than the people who just happen to share some genetic information. Mm-hmm. And, and we talked through that a bit because mm-hmm. that, that's something that she really truly felt, but she had been dealing with people telling her that's not the case. And so as you're talking about this, this mom, you're bringing this into your family. You have, you have them showing up for family birthday parties and things. I mean, that's, that's beautiful when you can, when you can do that, because as we all know, addiction causes problems in lives. Yeah. Well, when we can do that, and I have to say, you know, it took us four years, Jason, four long years before we opened up our front door to Jennifer. Um, and we really tried to be uh, very proactive and intentional to like meet in the community and all of those, all of those things. I have to say, um, one of the reasons in her six years of sobriety, which I am so darn proud of her, she's really an amazing parent. Um, 
but in her, her six years of sobriety, she has never, um, and even before that, even in the midst of her addiction, she has never, uh, been kind of divisive. Like it sounds like your daughter's, uh, first family might, might be like that. There's, that's never been a, um, a dynamic that we've had to engage with about like, who's your quote, real family. In fact, I write about that in a love stretch life because we welcome her youngest son, who is my adopted son's full biological brother. He's over at our house all the time. And there has been some, some talk about like, Hey, am I your real brother? I know you have another adopted brother, but am I a real brother? That's sometimes what my adopted son's younger brother will ask him. So it's just a really interesting invitation to have this conversation about like, who's real, like there's all these terms and it's good for you to, you know, understand all these terms, but really at the end of the day, it's like what you were talking about, Jason, it's like, we are all real to one another. And there's not like a tier here of like, who is more real in terms of love and connection and belonging. It's just family. I think that's really powerful. Yeah. The only, the only real tier system that I know of is, um, who you are as a human. Are you a good person? Are you rooting for me? Are you, you know, are we working together or are we at odds with one another? And that, that's really the only thing. And we find it in all aspects of life, whether it's something like racism or, you know, we even political party differences, Mm -hmm. um, you know, geoeconomic stratospheres we always as humans for some reason tend to default to that tribalism Mm -hmm. where there's us and we're good and then there's the other over there and they're bad Mm -hmm. and the truth is in our lives if we just understood that the people that are good people around us those are the ones we want we want to spend most time with Mm -hmm. absolutely and i think too you know if I want to be really clear. I'm grateful for the relationship that I have with Jennifer, but I am certainly not saying that I think it's appropriate for everyone to have this kind of relationship. Relationships take two, right? And the most important thing is keeping your child at the center of it all. And really, you know, I think deferring to what is best for them and then going, uh, going from there. But I think if we're not careful, if we're not intentional about how we frame kids coming into foster care, And if we're not intentional to use kind of adjectives like healthy and unhealthy, then I think the, the conversation does default to good or bad, which is like the false, it's just this false premise of foster care, right? Like I'm removing this child from you parentheses, bad parent and placing them with you parentheses, good parent, but really it's not good or bad. It's just who's in a place of overt struggle and who's not. Um, and so I think that's one of the things as I connect with prospective foster and adoptive parents that um, regardless of people, if people have any sort of relationship with their child's biological family, I think it's important to have a strive to have, at least it can be very difficult at times for a million valid reasons, but strive to have a compassionate lens on the suffering of that parent that is then causing suffering to that child. Yes, because if you're a foster parent and you're listening to this and you're honest with yourself, you know the truth is, is it's really easy to vilify bio parents. When you have a child who comes into your home who is drug addicted and you go, wait a dang minute, this is a one-year-old, this is a newborn baby, and you were smoking meth while pregnant with this baby, like, we, we could all vilify that that mom, right? Mm-hmm. It wouldn't be hard. And... Mm-hmm. Let's be honest. There's some bad choices that happen there, and we can't we can't deny that. But yeah. at the same time, is it really is it really our place to judge another human being 
for mm -hmm. their their worst day for their decisions on a bad day yeah yeah and i think that there's that holding intention of like gosh there are reasons to be justifiably angry um and oftentimes, you know, we know that parents who have their children who are child welfare involved are often products of the very same dysfunctional, overwhelmed state child welfare system that that um, failed them in some ways. And so not as an excuse, but I think also, you know, striving to like see, try, striving to see that person is, is the start. Yeah. And we've had a, a couple moms come on and, and tell their story about kids who were taken in the foster system from one reason or another and then they turned their life around and got their kids back and did their hard work mm -hmm. and were success stories and you're right the foster system is broken in so many ways but mm -hmm. but there's still hope there's still hope and i think yeah absolutely absolutely i think um i think it's so interesting you know the idea of success story i feel like we have this like very narrow view oftentimes of like what a success story is that it kind of follows this, like, um, you know, this, we know what we want to see, right. We know how we want people to be called to a higher level of health. And if we're returning kids to their families, we want that family to be healthy, to like receive them and be able to parent them, um, in health. But also I think sometimes we have to like, we're, we're just in a success driven culture, right? Jason, like we want, we want to see the success story, but like, what does it mean to stand in the gap for these kids when we're not seeing a success story live out before us? And I think that that's, what's really hard when we start talking with prospective foster parents is that you really are signing up to stand in the gap and you have no idea what kind of story you're going to be, you're going to be living out. And if there's going to be success, like a successful reunification to a healthy parent at the end of this or not, which I think is why it's so hard for people to raise their hand because you're saying you're raising your hand to the unknown. You have no idea what kind of story it's going to be. Yeah. The unknown where all that fear comes from. And you're right there. So, you know, real quick, what, what does your family structure look like? Yeah. So, um, the young man that I told you about Royal at the very beginning, we count him as our oldest. I refer to him as the son of my heart. He is nearly 25 and we've been reconnected now since he was 19. I have a, an almost 18 year old and a 15 year old biological daughters. I have a 13 year old who we fostered at six months old and then later adopted. It is our 13 year old's mother, Jennifer, um, that we are in relationship with. And I've gone through Really, I feel like every twist and turn that could be had um, and every emotion under the sun, we've probably experienced it together over the last 13 years. Um, and then my youngest child, Jason, is 10 right now. He is not, uh, the two brothers that we fostered and later adopted are not biologically related to one another. And it is, um, it's our youngest who you know, was a call from the hospital, from the child welfare system saying, Hey, can you pick up this baby for the weekend? And like so many stories go, right? Like he's now my 10 year old son who, uh, that 48 hours turned into a lifetime, much to our delight. We absolutely love and adore him, but I barely spoke to my husband. who was honestly playing NBA jam at a neighbor's house. When I got the call from the, you know, child welfare agency. And he like, he was, you know, he's not a big gamer, but he was in the midst of like playing this video game. When I was like, Hey babe, can we take a baby home from the hospital for the weekend? And he said, sure. So that was about the amount of forethought that he and I 
put into that. And I, I think I carry with me this, this really ever present awareness that like every yes can change our lives. We don't always know exactly what or who we are saying yes to. Um, we love our son so fiercely, couldn't love him an ounce more. And two years after he was adopted, when he was four years old, he got the diagnosis of fetal alcohol syndrome, which as you know, is daunting and lifelong. And all of a sudden our parenting track looks pretty different because now we're looking, um, at a parenting journey. That's just going to require an extremely high level of interdependence, um, forever. So we love and adore him and he has absolutely tipped our lives upside down in ways that we could never have expected, um, you know, that yes to bring. And also I feel like this is a grace because I think sometimes if I had known how hard this journey would be, um, gosh, with Royal, with Jennifer, with Charlie, with, with a lot of different things, right? Like name, there's a lot of circumstances for all of us that if we could have gotten kind of like a sneak peek, look into a crystal ball inside glimpse, we would have been like, Ooh, not sure. I want to raise my hand for that. And yet it turns out to be the thing that like, we need the most in life to like, learn what we need to learn and the family that we're, you know, that we're destined to have. I, I do believe, um, that he is meant to be with us and I'm, I'm grateful for him. And I have a fresh appreciation for the difficulty of parenting a child with an invisible brain-based yet profound disability. Um, it's, it's a game changer. And I think someone probably could have sat me down and tried to explain it to me, Jason, and I still wouldn't have gotten it because there's a certain amount that until you're living it, you just can't totally grasp the, or quantify how much this is going to change your life, how it's going to filter into every single aspect of everything. Um, and so that's our, that's our guy. And we, we adore him and fetal alcohol syndrome daily impacts his life and daily impacts the lives of everyone in our family. So we have four kids underneath the roof of our home, 10 to almost 18. Our, um, oldest is out of the house and we're in weekly connection with him. And, um, that's our, that's our family structure. So I'm going to assume that at some point you have heard the, uh, the words of wisdom coming from some other parent or my favorite from a non-parent, somebody who's never even parented their own children that I don't know why you let him do all that. You're just enabling bad behavior. <laughs> oh, isn't it lovely when people chime in, you know, I think one of the things and I write about this a little bit in a love stretch life, Jason is one of the many gifts of Charlie is that it has erased the inner monologue that I never wanted to admit that I had, right? Like I just always kind of, I didn't ever think of myself as like a judgmental person, but pre-parenting Charlie, I have to go back and say, gosh, if I saw a child that was just throwing punches in public, you know, I would have been like, man, wow. What is that child witnessed in that home? Or if I heard a child swearing like a sailor in public, you know, I would have been like, imagine what that sweet baby's hearing at home to be talking like that. Well, that child, Jason is now my child who is cursing like a sailor and really violent and really volatile. And like, I, we know what has been poured into him. And yet that's where, you know, uh, organic brain damage is it's a game changer. Right. Um, so I think the gift 
the gift in all of this is that I really do feel like that internal monologue is now gone because I'm so aware that we are only seeing a sliver of the surface of a story and we have no idea the behind the scenes. Um, so I am grateful to my son for that. Um, we have had meltdowns in pretty much any venue, pick anything I can probably, you know, say, yep, we've had a hard time there. Um, so it's just getting used to having a lot of, you know, stairs and taking deep breaths and just doing what we can and trying to do right by our son and to help him get regulated, but sometimes easier said than done. There's nothing quite as exciting as the kid who chooses to curse in the middle of church. Yes. Yep. <laughs> mm-hmm. And I, I don't know, spirituality, if, if you guys have that as part of your, your regular, your life and, and your regular experience, but yeah. We have had so many people in so many places, you know, and because my wife and I are, are honestly on separate spiritual journeys and we have been for a long time because we mm-hmm. come from wildly different and weird places. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, we have gone, you know, go to the big mega church somewhere and where there's, you know, 1500 people in a service and your mm-hmm. kid's the one who's losing all, every shred of sanity that he ever had in this mm-hmm. room. And, you know, they don't do it in the middle of the moment when, when there's a, a band up there making lots of sound and, and all that. They wait until it gets really good and quiet. Yeah. I mean, yeah. It, it's, it's a, I once had a um, Sunday school uh, director just kindly. She was so kind and so sweet about it. But she actually you know, asked if I could remind my child not to swear before going into Sunday school. He was like four at the time. And I just wanted to look at her like, Oh yes. Like if I only remind him, like that's been the missing piece of this whole equation. I'm just forgetting (laughs) to remind him, you know? Um, And so I think that, you know, people are so well-intentioned and I think that's the thing is like, we can't fault others for not getting it. Like, I don't think I would have really gotten the complexities and the fullness of all of this if, if I weren't living it. And I totally understand that, you know, families don't bring their kids to Sunday school or whatever, you know, their faith community looks like for, in their children's program, you know, to be exposed to a child that's coming undone or exposing them to language or what have you. But at the same time, Jason, I really do believe that our children are, are gifts and absolutely need and deserve to, to be there. You know, like this is not just a little, like everybody listen to the story and sit there with your hands clasped. I think that there is something to be learned and engaged with, but that is a tricky, like when it comes to faith communities, that can be really tricky because I think a lot of times it becomes a situation where we want to have a formula. We want to say, Hey, love and the right amount of nurture and the right amount of structure and discipline and plus, you know, insert your faith is going to somehow equal a clean slate when you, when we all know that that's not true. Like there's no such thing as a clean slate. We can do the best to offer consistency and belonging and connection and all the things we know that kids have, but there's no such thing as a clean slate. And I think that that's the danger in faith communities is thinking that, there is a little bit more of a formula that this plus this plus this plus faith equals, you know, it's going to be fine. And the reality is um, it doesn't mean it's not going to be a hard road. Yes. A hundred percent. Because, you know, when we walk into any room, depending on where you're at, we raise eyebrows for one reason or another. You know, my wife is very, very, very white and I am very, very ambiguously Brown. So we have found some communities around us, um, 
just about an hour away from us we still have a sundown town in here in uh in mid-missouri and we we have experienced people's judgment on that when i walk into a room i am currently you can't really tell it because well i haven't taken care of it too well but i'm walking around as a 40 something year old man rocking a mohawk because well why not right i had a great reason to cut it in my head because my little guy wanted a mohawk before school started and so we cut a mohawk into his hair and then right before school he was so nervous he said but dad i think i want you to shave it all off because i said why well what if what if nobody else has one what if nobody likes it what if they think it's stupid because nobody else has one i said come here buddy i went and got the clippers and i i sat him up on the on the the counter and and then i shaved a mohawk into my head (laughs) i love that jason that is that's awesome. That's we, awesome. We walk in looking different. I'm I'm covered in tattoos. My wife is covered mm-hmm. in tattoos, and we we walk into into a lot of faith communities, and they look at that, and, and immediately, you know, you you're always going to have somebody who raises an eyebrow. Mm-hmm. But because of the journey we've walked, mm-hmm. we have learned to be able to look at people in a different light. And it sounds mm-hmm. like that's that's one of those gifts that your children have given to you as well. Absolutely, absolutely, and I. I'm so grateful for that. I'm so grateful um, to just have a humble recognition of like all we do not know. Like I, I feel like as I get older, I'm 40 something as well. Like I feel like the things I I can say firmly that I know are getting like less and less as time goes on, <laughs> not more and more. And I think that's, you know, courtesy of of some of my parenting journey with my kiddos who have exposed me to to a lot. Yeah, because I see that I see that coming from people all the time. Even even one of my own children, um, my teenage daughter, oftentimes she looks at at the youngest boy in the house, and she's she's very judgmental of him, because I'm just gonna say he's a handful. Mm-hmm. And on the kindest way to put it, he's a handful. Mm-hmm. If you look in the in DSM five under ADHD, he is the gold standard. Mm-hmm. Um, he's a kid who's gonna require a lot of attention, and you know, because that's just you know that's that's what his journey mm-hmm. is because of where he mm-hmm. comes from and what he's experienced and even people who come out of that same situation don't always recognize the fact that man these these kids have got a hard road ahead of them because of what was done to them and mm-hmm. it's not like they have a hard road for a little while mm-hmm. like some of this damage some of the trauma creates physical brain damage that we can now see on the MRIs that we do and this is lifetime struggles that they're yeah. going to, they're going to face yeah. And our job isn't to fix it. It's to allow them to learn how to process through that and work within within their own systems. Absolutely. I, I totally agree. And it also struck me, I mean, isn't it so true that for foster and adoptive parenting, I think one of the biggest areas that I encourage people to be intentional about is to just say, hey, you're going to need to get creative because the attention, you know, the attention pie here is not going to be sliced evenly, right? Like you're talking about with your older daughter and your, and your younger son. And, and, and I think, you know, our older girls, um, neurotypical girls who are kind of easy, uh, are able to, to, to hang, but also over the years, my husband and I have been convicted about like, we need to be pouring into them and spending intentional time with them and not, you know, it's true that the squeaky wheel gets the grease. Right. And I think one of the fastest ways to create resentment in a foster adoptive family is to not pay attention is to only be pouring into that squeaky wheel. And so that's something that we haven't always done perfectly, but I feel, um, you know, I just have a renewed appreciation for how it might not be even, but we do need to be intentionally pouring into each of our kids. Um, because if we're not intentional 
our, our youngest can take up the entire attention pie if we're not intentional. Oh, I, I feel you there. I so feel you there because in any given moment, there's usually at least one person in our house who's who's on the edge of a meltdown and and that's just the first domino typically to fall in in an evening and you can go into a crazy evening real quick and so you know mm-hmm. with that in mind I, I'm, I just want to ask you this like what do you do you and your husband to to keep your your marriage strong amidst all this because it's hard it's hard i don't care what anybody says it's worth it and i'll tell everybody that but it's also hard and inside of your marriage when you just got done fighting a fight for the last three hours with a kid who's angry because mm-hmm. of whatever silly reason threw him off kilter and mm-hmm. and you've had three other kids who stepped off into their own little crazy mm-hmm. space as well because of of this one's meltdown and you get done and I, all you really want to do sometimes is fall down in bed and go pass out now i'm exhausted mm-hmm. now. good mm-hmm. night and then mm-hmm. and that happens day after day mm-hmm. and the relationship gets gets to where it suffers because of that. So how have you guys been intentional about really driving that part? Well, Jason, in the love stretch life, I actually do talk about, um, you know, a stint in marriage counseling that Luke and I did just because it's very easy when you're pouring your effort into trying to just keep things from unraveling to not have a lot at the end of the day to give to one another. Um, I, my hats are off to, to single parents everywhere. I honestly, I'm so grateful that with the life that we have that I feel like Luke and I are kind of like a teeter totter when one of us is about to lose it, we're able to kind of, you know, peace out and tap out to, to the other one. So I'm so grateful, but that's certainly not like a date night, right? Like, Hey, you go in and deal with that. And then I'll, I'll rescue you in 20 minutes. <laughs> I feel like, um, you know, I feel like one of the things I think as we get older, we've been married now, we're coming up on 22 years. It's less about kind of going out and doing the things, although that's fun. And I do enjoy that, but when we can get into a good rhythm and it's really easy for us to get off kilter, but we just try to set like a 20 minute check-in, um, several nights a week where it's like, Hey, we're going to connect together. And after the kids are, the younger kids are in bed and we're just going to connect and share about our days. Because I think if we're not careful, Jason, so much of our connection points as partners can be become about logistical business items concerning the kids. Who's going to take the kid on this day to this appointment? Who's going to do pickup after school or whatever? So I think those 20 minute check-ins as, as humble as it sounds, that has been a great gift in keeping our marriage kind of grounded and keeping us in reminding us that like we are more than just parenting, um, a lot of chaos, a, a lot of times. Um, yeah. And I think as much as possible, just trying to like laugh. And honestly, I think those of us that have been down this foster and adoptive road can get what might seem to others that haven't lived this almost like a dark sense of humor. I don't know if you know what I mean, but like are able to like laugh about things that objectively just are not funny. But I think sometimes it's like you either have to laugh or you cry. Right. And so it's just, (laughs) it feels good. I mean, we're not laughing all the time, but sometimes you just have to be able to look at the situation and be like, Hmm. Okay. Uh, so yeah. I think that's part of how we, you know, try to keep ourselves grounded is, 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 uh, having those 20 minute check-ins. We also, you know, were part of a small group at our, um, church for a while. And then it became really apparent that we couldn't participate. It was like too much for our young. It was really overstimulated and way past bedtime, all the things. And so we really 
thought long and hard about what do we need to cultivate? And about seven years ago, we invited five families whose kids struggle in similar ways as our kids. And we just said, Hey, we can't do a weekly thing that's over our heads. We imagine you can't either, but we are going to open up our home from four to seven on, you know, the third Sunday of the month. And we're not going to make it like fancy. We're going to make it super simple and we're going to call it family feast. And we're going to just gather together. And I think the gathering with other families, because this is such an isolating journey has actually been something that has been good for our marriage to be around other families and to be able to laugh, uh, laugh with them and also kind of carry um, their, their burdens and their grief with them as well. I think there's something very um, healing about being around other families that don't need to know the particulars or the specifics of what your life looks like, but are able to say, I get it. And actually mean that without you having to explain, there's just some, there's nothing like that. So I think, I know that's, that's a community oriented, um, you know, snippet, but I do feel like that snippet and us creating what we didn't have, instead of just backing out and saying like, well, guess we can't do that anymore, but just really thinking about what do we need? Who do we want to be surrounded by? How do we engage has actually helped our partnership. Yeah, well, absolutely. You know, and I, I love that you started with, with therapy because my wife and I have a standing meeting once a month with Dr. Tom mm-hmm. and Dr. Tom's a genius and I love the guy and Amanda with, with her own buckets of trauma that she came to our relationship with, she is able to open up with him and we can, you know, it took a couple tries to find the right guy, but my gosh, how a week or a monthly meeting is, isn't like just this huge part that's brought out some of the stuff that we're struggling with mm-hmm. and we might not we not, might not have the ability to have that conversation in the moment, but it gives us that connection point where we can go, oh yeah, there was this thing this last week and there was mm-hmm. this problem that we're struggling with or this thing that's that's been weighing on us and just allows us that that space to talk through some of these harder things because most people are, you know, what, let's be honest, most marriages fail, oh, maybe not most, but pretty close, 50% of all marriages in the US are failing these days and, and half of those are money struggles. I'm not entirely convinced the other half isn't like crazy struggles to do with kids who have who have diagnoses. And if you have kids who are who you're either fostering or have adopted, there's a high probability you're going to have some diagnoses that you have to deal with. And that's hard. I mean, most of your friends don't have that experience in life. Mm-hmm. It's it's true. I think and and it's been interesting, you know, we've been as you heard, like we started fostering before we had biological kids. So, you know, we're, we're nearly 20 years in. And, um, I think it's really important to be around people that I get it factor with other families that are living this, but I also think it's really important to be around others and to not be totally insular with just other foster and adoptive families, but with, with others as well. I find that there are families who genuinely want to come alongside. They just don't really know how to do that. So I feel like foster and adoptive families can commiserate with one another on the emotional aspects, but for the real practical things like, Hey, let me drop you bring you by a coffee or can I mow your lawn for you? That's not something that other foster and adoptive parents really usually do for other foster and adoptive parents. Whereas, um, you know, oftentimes the capacity for those to, to come alongside and engage in tangible ways can be greater at times for those that are not doing foster care and adoption. So I always encourage families that when you get an offer 
as, as awkward as it can be, you know, when someone's like, Oh, let me know if I can help, um, try to find a way to, to, um, you know, fold them in as you have emotional capacity, because I think they're wanting, I think so oftentimes I know speaking for myself, like pride just makes me be like, no, 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 we're fine. I want people to think I have it to get like, we're fine. We're fine. Um, and that can be varying degrees of, um, you know, chaos where I really might be able to, to use the help. So I'm trying to learn that myself to let others come alongside me. And I do feel like at least in my circle, those that have offered have been, um, oftentimes those that are not walking this unique dirty. So it's important to, to have, to be with the people that can say, I get it and just know without having to explain. And it's also important to include others that don't necessarily fit that category. But what about you? I mean, do you and your wife have community that's kind of balanced or are you feeling like most of your community are those that have also fostered and adopted? Well, first off, now we're going to have to mark this, this episode as explicit because you use the F word. That's the F word that I use all, that, that I, I call my wife on wife out on all the time. Fine. It's a four letter F word and it never means what it sounds like. <laughs> got it. Okay. Got it. I was like, did I just say something? Oh my gosh. My son's rubbing off on me. I don't even know when I'm using that. So. <laughs> yeah. The F word is, is fine because we, we tell that lie all the time to people. How is, how things? Oh, I'm fine. I'm fine. I'm fine. I'm good. You know, that that's, that's a, that's a guy thing for sure. I know. Um, mm-hmm. Women tend to be a little bit more in touch with their emotions and maybe more willing to share that stuff with other women. But mm-hmm. us guys, we, we say that a lot. Oh, it's fine. We're doing good. And we'll, we'll pull out the one thing that we can kind of hobble together to call to show our big wins and success mm-hmm. so that mm-hmm. we do the machismo thing. And we, we really, though, we're not fine. Mm-hmm. You know, um, to, to all the all the foster moms, I know a good portion of our listeners are, are female. I can see that in some of the demographics that we get. And I'm just going to tell you something. The guys in your life are struggling too. We don't show it well. We are not very emotionally honest oftentimes. And it's not because we're hiding it from you. We're hiding it from us. We don't want to admit that we're struggling. But some of this stuff is hard. You know, and inside of our group, we don't have a whole lot of foster and or adoptive friends, you know, families who who get it really. We, we don't have much of a, of a circle to be quite honest because... Mm-hmm. Because my kids sometimes create difficult moments for other people to understand. And it's, you know, it's really hard to work through that in these moments. And so building a community like that, if you have those people around you, that that can be such a such a benefit. You know, we do have a foster group in our area, but it's kind of fallen apart over the last several years. And we have been so busy. You know, if you've got kids with diagnosis, you understand this. You yeah. know, if, if I asked you how many, how many therapy appointments you, you run to, you're not going to give me a monthly number. You're going to give me weekly at least. Mm-hmm. That's, that's real. Yeah. Yeah. Every other Tuesday it's two on Tuesday. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. No, I hear you. I hear you. And I think that that's, I think that that's just a tightrope that so many families like ours walk. It's like, we know, we know we need, you know, that we're not supposed to go it alone. And yet, um, you know, what does that look like when, our kids are more than full-time jobs and, and we need to be around people who, where we're not going to need to explain. Cause that's not a, that's not a super welcoming environment. Like if you're feeling super uh, like there's eyes on you at all times and that's not, I mean, it has to be the right kind of people, the right kind of environment to, to foster that sense of belonging. 
just oh, yeah. being around people in a crowd does nothing. And if anything, it agitates kids like ours, <laughs> oh, raises yeah. their anxiety. A hundred percent. You know, just tactically speaking, a couple of things that, that we do on a regular basis. You know, I have an alarm on my phone that at 523 every afternoon goes off. And in 523 Central, wherever you're listening to this, you can stop and know that I am walking towards Amanda, my wife, at that point because I'm usually home by that time. And so that's that's our moment to connect. That's 30 seconds, regardless of what we're doing, um, except for yesterday while we were painting a chicken house and, and a couple of my sons had um, oil-based exterior latex from the wrist out from their wrist out to the end of the paintbrush and she did not want any attention at that point she said step away from me <laughs> um, <laughs> but but we we have those moments where where that's that's just our connecting point every day if at all possible we, we just it's just it's a time for 30 seconds to stop and connect or or i, I love I've, that. Known, I've known a couple people who, who's put a, a reminder in their phone again phone reminders are amazing that at at two o'clock in the afternoon or whatever it is for for the the like one of the guys that was talking with this morning that's what they do every day at like two o'clock they send an appreciative text to their wife you know something mm -hmm. about something that they've done recently something that they've noticed something that they appreciate just as a way to constantly be intentional on connecting with each other so that as we walk through this journey we're not we're not walking away from each other so well said i love that yeah, it's it's so valuable because because at the end of the day, if we do all this right, all these kids are going to end up going off to college and then, you know, or or into the the job field and they're going to have their own house and their own spouses and their own families and if we do it at least half well, mm -hmm. we'll end up together in a home and like the person that we live with still. And that's mm -hmm. that's an important goal. Mm -hmm. And in the foster and adoptive community, it's, it's some extra layers of difficulty for that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, again, what does that notion of success look like? I think for many families, I know families engaging um, with daunting diagnoses, part of, part of the, you know, rumbling with joy and grief on this journey is, is really wrestling with what those diagnoses mean, not only for them, but for us as well. And so, um, you know, I know some families like ours are thinking about, uh, thinking about the future, but I always feel like it's a, it's a dance, right? Like I, you want to be future or you want to think about the future for your kids, but also today seems to take up so much energy and time that I often think it's a gift to just kind of have our head down for today. So I think it's a balance, you know, like we want to kind of get a peek down the road at the future, but sometimes to be honest, for me, that, that feels really overwhelming for me. It's, I just think, oh my goodness, like, are we still going to be here? And I think, you know, our kids just like us we're, are constantly evolving and it's hard to, it's hard to predict, but I don't know if you feel that tension, but sometimes I feel that pull between like, I just need to keep my head down for today. Um, and I think there's a lot of beauty in just being focused of today, but it's hard for a lot of us not to kind of peek at the future and sometimes feel some fear at the future of like, what is this going to ultimately look like? And at the end of the day, it's not our decision. Like you said, it's, you know, ours to do is to keep our, is to, is to keep trying to, you know, create connection with our kids and to just, you know, walk this winding life road with them. But I think that can be a really challenging piece for a lot of foster and adoptive families is like looking at the future and kind of feeling a little bit of a cringy face. Like, uh, this isn't the picture that I was thinking of. I don't know. So I'm only supposed to feel that fear sometimes. 
<laughs> exactly. Exactly. You're supposed to stay, you know, if you're in the present moment, maybe you, we can't feel fear if we're just thinking about today. But I think for a lot of families, um, a lot of families, it comes back to that formulaic, right? Like the future, we want to call our kids to, to the rise to the highest level of their capability, whatever that means for them. And we want to, you know, be there with them and, and love them and be consistent with them. But our kids' capabilities are going to be different. They're not going to, they're not going to always look the way they would have looked if trauma or in utero substance abuse weren't part of the picture. Yeah. Yeah. And, and a lot of those things, well, not a lot, all of those things are completely outside of your kid's control. They're outside of your control. And the rest of the world has these expectations of who our kids are going to be. And we get busy feeling that those, the weight of that expectation, and it's mm-hmm. just not going to be their story. Yeah. And I think that that's where I know I just continually have to try to take a deep breath and release, you know, just try it. But it's, it's not a one-time deal, right? It's a continual, <laughs> it's a continual thing. It's not like a very linear process. I think, um, you know, rumbling with joy and grief is not a linear process. It's kind of a circle around circle around again. I know for me sometimes, you know, when I'm with other parents whose kids are around the same age as my youngest, which is 10, they'll share things kind of offhandedly about things their kids are doing about like the riding of the bike or, you know, uh, various things like that. And those are just things that my son is not doing, has no interest in doing. And, um, it can kind of remind me afresh, like, oh, wow, we're on a different track here. Like we're, 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 um, we're not hitting those same milestones. And there are times, there are days when I'm able to just accept that with just joy and like, well, it's just our journey. Like every journey is unique. Like we're, we're not it. And then there are other times where depending on just mood or circumstance or other, you know, things floating around in life, there are times where that can kind of make me feel really sad, you know, like, oh gosh, yeah ouch, we, we aren't meeting that. Like we are on a different track. So I think there are times where I'm reminded of that and I can just like kind of joyfully accept the life that is mine. And then there are other times where I just feel like, man, for the sake of my child, um, you know, I wish, I wish this looked differently for him and yet here we are. And so what can we do other than just to like greet this day to the best of our ability? Yeah. It's a difficult mindset to stay inside of because society and culture has expectations of these kids because they don't know their story. Mm-hmm. They don't know that. I mean, there are kids that if your child makes it to the day and has all the clothes that they left school, left for school on at the end of the day, when they get home, they mm-hmm. haven't gotten pulled into the principal's office. There's mm-hmm. been no reports of cursing a teacher out or throwing mm-hmm. anything across the room. There were no fights like this is a good day. Yeah. This is a, a celebration moment. That that's let's let's do ice cream tonight kind of day. Oh my gosh, one hundred percent, Jason. And I think that that's part of the gift. Um, part of one of the many gifts of raising my youngest son is that I have learned to stop and dare say celebrate things that before I would have purely mistook mistook for like a low level behavioral expectation. 
you keep your seatbelt on when we're on, you know, when we're driving around town, but now I'm like, buddy, you kept your seatbelt on. That's so awesome. High five. You know, like let's, you know, uh, being able to, to do hygiene stuff himself or make his bed or different things. And that's, that's actually something that I write about in the love stretch life a little bit. And it goes back to that attention piece of the pie that we were talking about earlier, Jason. It's like, you know, I'm Amazon priming, um, prizes to my son for this, that, and the other. And then, you know, my oldest daughter comes home with like straight A's and I'm like, great job, sweetie, you know? And she's like, wait a minute, you know, like what? Um, And so I think that that's just the piece where we have to recognize like, we're not going to do this perfectly. There's always going to be ways and reasons why we feel like we're falling short. We just need to like own what we can try to try to correct course where, where we can. Um, and, but, but it's always going to be a dance. It's always going to be, there's always going to be something that's slightly off kilter, I think with children who require so much, so much physical energy and so much emotional energy. Um, but in the midst of that, we have to find a way to communicate that like love and acceptance, um, to our other kids as well. Um, but I totally hear you with the, like celebrating the, the, you know, we were giving prizes for like not swearing on the bus. I mean, come on. If any of my other kids did that, I would have like been like, what in the actual heck, you know? And with him, I'm like, high five buddy, like so awesome. You know? So there's something sweet about being able to stop and recognize, but there's also, you know, something that's, it's not fair. It's, but my other kids are neurotypical, even the ones that have gone through trauma. Some of them, um, my 13th still neurotypical. It's just very, it's very much a game changer when there's, um, actual, um, neurodiversity that we're, that we're engaging with, you know, and for the dads out there, we can all at least agree that learning that dance is really difficult. Um, you know, some of the moms too, as well. My wife is not a dancer, you know, but, but some of these dances that we're being asked to learn are really challenging dances. Mm -hmm. What makes it worthwhile to you? Oh my word. I mean, I don't know anything. I don't know anything different. Like this is, this is how we started our parenting journey. Um, 20 something year, years ago. Um, you know, I, my friend made me a sign, um, that just says Micah six, eight, it's hanging up in our dining room. Um, love mercy, do justice, walk humbly. And I just feel like that's, that really is at the center of my why, um, it is, is my faith. And also I feel like now that I've been exposed to people and situations and circumstances that I have learned through foster care and adoption, it's almost like I can't go back and pretend that I haven't heard those things that I haven't seen those things that I didn't learn those things. Um, I just feel like it's really opened my eyes and given me like a different lens on the world, um, stepping into foster care and adoption, would life have been like simpler and more tidy and maybe like a little bit more, um, less edgy, you know, if we hadn't walked this road, like absolutely. And yet I don't regret it, even though it's been like the best and the hardest thing I've ever done rolled into one. I guess that's how I would answer that. What would you say to that? Uh, (laughs) you know, honestly, for me, um, the fostering journey is is the reason why I believe I was put here on this earth. Mm. Um, you know, uh, I've been in a couple different groups. One of them is a uh, 
is a, a dad's group that, and we have a, a group of guys. It's a speci- a faith forward call team that we we uh, we actually I'll visit with them this night this evening. Mm-hmm. Today is Monday, and we do it every Monday evening. And one of the things we did was to work out what our spiritual purpose statement is. Mm-hmm. And you know, I know you mentioned your, your own spiritual journey, mm-hmm. and I have it right here on the desktop of my computer. I have it plastered there to remind me every day, and mm-hmm. it, it's it's quite simply this. I, as an imager of God, I am a father to the fatherless and a protector of his most vulnerable children. I help chaos find an example of a God who calls us from the world through grace into a love that we don't deserve. And that's why God put me here. It's beautiful, Jason. That's why he put me here. I am here for that reason and none other. Um, well, maybe some others, but but that's the one that I know of right now. And so that's the one that I'm going to follow. I'm going to chase that one with with everything that I have. And it gives my life true meaning because a hundred years from today, I know that the world will be different because yeah. Amanda and I make the choices that we've made. Mm-hmm. And that's not to say that we made all the right choices because we no. screwed up many, many, many times. Right. You know, especially if you have kids with diagnoses. Yeah. You know, but it's not about perfection. It's about doing the best you can and and knowing that, you know, with a with a heart to like learn more and also with grace, like all those cracks are going to be filled in to the best of their ability. And we keep marching forward. I just think if, if only people knew, you know, I feel like he, the word hero gets tossed around. And I just feel like if only people knew that this is just ordinary people saying an ordinary yes. And then just trying to walk out the faithfulness of the implications of that. Yes. Right. Like there's nothing extraordinarily special other than just the steadfastness with which we're desiring to, to connect and and love our children who can have some extra hurdles in the way for other people to see them as I believe their essence truly is like the essence of my son is, is sweet, but the manifestation of what the world sees is a prickly porcupine, you know, and I'm able to like kind of hold that tension of the, of, of that difference of that gap. Yes. And that's our job is to hold that space for them until they're able to, to walk that journey on their own. And hopefully that happens before we leave this earth, but you know, all we can do is, is the best that we can do. And, (laughs) you know, again, the world will be different. It will be different because we have had the moments to be able to have the, the honor to stand in the gap for some of these kids. Mm-hmm. And some of them are, have been much harder than others. I'm going to say that oppositional defiance disorder, ODD is one of the ones that I am not terribly good with. Um, God we have that going them. on too. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. God gave me one of those. He wanted me to learn something. Mm-hmm. I did not learn it very well, but we made it to the end of that particular journey. But you know, we're, we're still fighting some of that with, with some kids, not not a diagnosis of that, but some of those tendencies. And it's it's really difficult, but it's it's worth it at the end, because if you change this child's life, not only does it, does it warm my heart to know that I did that, but I change the world that my kids are going to grow up in. Mm-hmm. When my kids, when I have grandkids or great grandkids, it will change the world that they grow up in because you have less people who are still fighting and battling with some of these demons in their lives that, that are not things that are theirs that they put on them, mm-hmm. things that were put on them by other adults in their early childhood. And so mm-hmm. we, we do our best to walk that journey. I like that idea of holding it inside of that tension because that's where we walk most of the time is in that tension. I almost never have a, just a good day. You know, everything yeah, was great. 100%. Today, it was wonderful. 
Yeah, no, absolutely. We're like splicing things up into moments, aren't we? <laughs> you better. An hour ago was great. This hour is real rough. I mean, already today, this if I described to you, you know, it's 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 a roller coaster, but I think that there's a gift in that too, you know, of just recognizing and and celebrating and I also think, you know, the transformational arrow is not one way, right? Like our kids are changing us as we strive to like love them and be there for them. Like our hearts are being changed. Like we're not the same people that we would have been if we didn't have the privilege of parenting these children and the myriad of things that get thrown our way, sometimes literally thrown our way. (laughs) Yes, yes, you do. Um, but yeah, no, I just, I, I just see it as, as, as such a gift because I think that, um, I want to be the person I am today without raising the kids that I've been given. You know, that transformational part about how it works both ways, you know, sometime, um, I want to know a year or so back, my oldest son was, was at our house and he's uh, probably 22 ish, 22, 23 at the time. And you know, our, my youngest walks into the room, he's in the middle of a meltdown and, yeah, we took some time. I lowered my seat. I mm-hmm. slowed my voice. I lowered my, mm-hmm. my tone, changed my cadence, mm-hmm. worked real hard at, at calming him down, got him calm, asked him what was going on. And I mean, his world was falling apart because of something silly, mm-hmm. realistically, for mm-hmm. the most people. Who, for a neurotypical person, you'd be like, mm-hmm. that's what this is all about? Come on, dude. Right. But we got him calmed down and said, all right, bud, nope, we'll see you in a bit. Boom, knuckles. He gives me knuckles, turns around and walks out of the room. And my oldest son looks at me and he says, where the hell was this guy 20 years ago? <laughs> <laughs> oh, man, because we continue to evolve. You're like, sorry, you didn't get him then, but he's here now. <laughs> yeah, I said you were building him. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but, but yeah, so that's that transformational piece that I know that, you know, because our kids have come to us kind of in waves of ages, we had the three older kids in mm-hmm. one group. We have two teenagers right now. We have uh, a, a seven and eight year old in the house right now. So each group of kids, as they get older, I, I do a better and better job, but it's only because of all the things that these, these hard situations have taught us. Yeah. Yep. That's real. Yeah. It, it's the transformational piece is, is huge. That's what we gain out of, out of this life that we don't always see it in the moment. So, you know, I, I really do appreciate you telling your story here today. Um, if you had one piece of advice to give, to somebody who's looking at becoming a foster parent, um, who's interested in the journey, what what would you say to them right off the bat before before you do anything else, do this? Before you do anything else, sit down with somebody who is living it and ask a lot of questions. I think oftentimes uh, recognizing that that particular person or that family's experience isn't the catch-all. We all have different experiences, but I think that there are some common themes in foster care. Um, and I think it's like so many things, right? Like we have a notion of how it's going to look or feel or be, and then there's the reality. And oftentimes there's like a Canyon of a gap between those two things. And so I think the more I can encourage uh, perspective, you know, foster parents to go in adoptive parents too, like with eyes wide open, um, you know, doing their homework on trauma, doing their homework on secondary trauma and about how any of your stuff, any of your stuff is going to be exposed on this journey. All of our baggage is going to come out in ways, um, that our kids can 
trigger us, you know, like all the things uh, are going to be kind of tested. And so meet with those that are living it to try to get a good understanding. And then if you choose to pursue this, to go in with your eyes wide open, really. Um, Yeah. A lot of what I talk about is, is covered in no sugar coating, both kind of like the practical and the emotional aspects of fostering. It's truly the book, Jason, that I wish somebody had sat down and handed me 20 years ago about like, Hey, Jelana, here's all the ways that your life is going to be forever changed as a result of foster parenting. Um, but yeah, I think there's so many, there's so many things that can be said, but I think that's the biggest is just seeking out the lived experiences of those around you. And if you don't have anyone naturally around you, what can you do? Who can you call? Who can you sit down with to seek out those experiences so that you're not, um, so that you're not like staring wide-eyed of like, oh, wow, I thought foster parenting was going to be this, but now it's this. And I'm not sure I want to do this. I think that's one of the greatest gifts you can give to yourself, your family, and a child that you might ultimately be welcoming through your home one day is to really, um, talk with people about their, their lived experiences. Well, Jelana, I am incredibly angry with you because you did not send me that book 12 years ago, <laughs> 13 years ago before we got on our journey. I had to learn the hard way. There's there's a, a forehead-shaped dent in my desk right here. <laughs> <laughs> I'll send you a copy now. You you could write your own book now, I'm sure. But um, yeah, no, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's wild. I feel like I'm still learning stuff every day. I know you are too, even, you know, being in this, this foster care world, it's, it's wild to, to recognize how much I've learned and how much I still have to learn if I just stay humble and stay open. That's part of the, the amazing part about this podcast journey we've been on is we have had the opportunity to pick the brains of former foster youth, foster parents. We've been able to talk to professional psychologists who work with foster youth, you know, all, all different aspects of this and hear all the different pieces and parts that come from this group as a whole. There's this huge subculture of us that, that all work in this world from our own angle and to, to pull some of the wisdom that comes out of these disciplines that I would never have even imagined, you know, something as simple as, um, and I can't remember the, the, the guest name. I can see her face and I'm terrible with names, but one of the guests who talked about one of the things she did was like, she hired out uh, uh, like a nanny who would when her, she had like a, just a routine doctor's appointment take the kid this kid to the doctor's appointment for her because she had I think 10 or 11 kids and it was a struggle to, to be able to, to do it all and she found little ways like that that my wife was like oh my gosh my mind was just blown that would be so simple and so easy and so smart why have I never thought to do that mm-hmm. and you know having that wisdom from a lot of different people is, is amazing. So, you know, the idea of sitting down with people who have lived experience, that, that's such great advice. And, and I appreciate you for that one real, really, because my gosh, my grandpa used to always say, you know, learn from everyone else's mistakes because you won't live long enough to make them all. Mm, I'm yeah. trying, I'm trying. <laughs> I got most of them under my belt. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh. Well, Jelana, thanks again for for coming in here and telling your story and being open and and telling all these the hard parts as well, because we could paint it like rainbows and unicorns, but nobody would stay in the system if they got lied to all the time. That's for darn sure. Well, thanks so much, Jason, for having me on. It's been a joy to connect with you. And I just really respect the conversations that you're curating so that people feel more seen and less alone. 
Okay. And now we will definitely make certain that there are some links to the book in the show notes there in the podcast player uh, that you're using. If not, you can find it all on fostercarenation.com. There's a page there that has all of the people that we have interviewed, any authors and, and things like that, links to their books. If we can find them in um, on Amazon, something like that, we, we will have a link there where you can click on it and, uh, and just go find the books right away. Okay, Foster Care Nation. Thank you for listening to Jelana's story. Now take her knowledge and wisdom to heart so you can create love and healing in your family and community. Be sure to come back next week. We have new episodes every Tuesday. If you'd like to share your story as a guest, you can reach us at jason at fostercarenation.com. You can connect with other like-minded people at facebook.com slash groups slash fostercareuj. And don't forget, we have an account at Buy Me A Coffee. It's like a virtual tip jar where you can help us fund our mission for as little or as much as you want. It's at buymeacoffee.com slash fostercare. The links to everything are in the show notes in your podcast player or at fostercarenation.com. And as always, you are so super awesome. I thank you guys. Thank you for listening. Thanks, thanks, thanks. Unparalleled Studios. Studios.